Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and tonight we'll look at verses 27 through 31. Romans 3, 27 through 31. Before we get to that, let's, let's actually look back at verse 21 and, and so we can get up to speed with regard to context. The apostle says in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This was a, a portion of the word of God that we spent four lessons on, four well-spent Lessons, I believe, it's the portion of Scripture that Martin Luther called the very central point of the whole Bible, justification by faith. So in verses 27 of chapter 3, all the way through verse 25, and, and in other words, the entirety of chapter 4, Paul will now expound the key element of the great theological theme of 321 through, through 26. You've got this incredible theological principle. And now Paul is going to take the last few verses of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4 to expound upon that idea of justification by faith. In this section, and I'm talking about the whole section now, not our, not our portion of the word for tonight, but in chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4, verse 25, faith will be contrasted with the works of the law, and that's in 3.28, our passage tonight. It'll be contrasted with works, period, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It'll be contrasted with circumcision in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. It'll be contrasted with the law in verses 14 and 13 through 16 of chapter 4. And finally, faith will be contrasted with sight in 4.17 through 22 seems like everybody always has a tendency to want to add something to faith. And in next week's lesson, Paul's going to make sure we understand if you add something to faith, it doesn't count for faith anymore. Faith plus anything equals not faith. The only thing that equals faith is faith plus nothing is pure faith. A faith that is watered down by our works, God doesn't count for faith anymore. A faith that is watered down by circumcision, it doesn't count for faith anymore as far as God is concerned. Paul proclaims what became the hallmark of the Reformation, in other words, sola fide, uh, faith alone, and, and he proclaims that faith alone is the means by which a person can be brought into a relationship with the God of the universe, and it's the only way. So we can't have somebody else come, come to us and say, hey, listen, if you want to get to heaven by faith alone, that's cool for you. But I'm going to get there by faith plus works. That's what I think works for me. Can't do it. Paul doesn't allow it. It's one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. There are many that would disagree with the idea of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, if we went worldwide... 
and took people who consider themselves to be Christians, you must know that actually the, the majority wouldn't agree with what I have presented already tonight, or, in my view, what Paul presents in the book of Romans. I know that many of you, or, or quite a few of you, grew up in a Roman Catholic background. And so the words that I've already spoken tonight might seem a little bit foreign to you, or perhaps they seemed foreign to you at one time or another. And the next few remarks that I make are not aimed at, at putting anybody down, and not taking any shots at anybody, but I do want you to see that there are definite, distinct differences in the way that Protestantism would look at these passages and the way that Catholicism would work at these would look at these passages. Why would I bother doing this? Well, for one thing, uh, it's been a historical argument for 500 years, and we need to be able to, to have a, a framework from which to understand that argument. But it's more than just that. It's more than just some sort of scholarly uh, theological debate that can happen around a campfire, and then you, you go on back to your rooms, nobody cares about it. Uh, there are many people, even that I'm speaking to tonight, that, that have family or friends that are, that are still Roman Catholic, and you wonder about their salvation. And by the way, in case you didn't know it, they wonder about yours as well, <laughs> equally. And so how do we handle this? You know, when, when you have people on both sides of an issue, one, one group that believes in faith alone, in Christ alone, another group that believes essentially in faith by works, uh, faith plus works, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that in just a minute. How do we how do we handle this? You know, do we just do we just kind of cover our ears? You know, like the monkeys that see no evil and hear no evil and speak no evil. Do we just act like a problem doesn't exist? Well, no, I don't think so because it's too important of a situation. We love our friends. Let's say, for for example, I have a Roman Catholic background, but the Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they're going to be the same of the same vein soteriologically. Do we just ignore it, or do we talk about it? And if we talk about it, can we go to the scriptures and at least show where we believe that we get that theology from? Well, of course, I think we need to be able to have a conversation about it. It's far too important. And as I said a minute ago, not really joking, they, they believe that the, the Protestant doctrine, and I'm talking about they as a church. I'm not talking about necessarily individuals within it. You need to understand that. But as a church, the, the church at Rome, the leadership at Rome, believes that, for example, I would be a heretic. I certainly believe Martin Luther was a heretic, and John Calvin, and Melanchthon, and, and Zwingli, and all those who were in that period of time, but everybody that's followed them. So let's take a look for just a moment at what the, the Catholic view of this would be, and I want to try to present it fairly. It's, it's not fair to present a straw man argument and then tear down the straw man. I, w I would like for you to know actually what it is that they hold to, and, and so in order to do that, I'm going to quote directly from the Catholic Encyclopedia. I'm not, this is not an interpretation of mine. These will be their words, and, and most of it is official jargon from Rome. And so I'd like to, to quote just about a, oh, 100 words or so. It won't take long. Listen carefully. And the reason I want you to listen so carefully, it might help you to lead someone to a proper understanding of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and then what's going on in this chapter as well. First, and again, if, if you have a Roman Catholic background, I am not trying to be mean to you. I'm not trying to misrepresent your view. Just trying to simply show that, that there are contrasting positions that have been taken on this issue. And then I'd like to show you what I believe that Paul said about it. This is from, directly from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The ideas on which the Reformers built their system of justification 
except perhaps judiciary, I'm sorry, except perhaps fiduciary faith, were by no means really original. They had been conceived long before, either by heretics of the earlier centuries or by isolated Catholic theologians, and had been quietly scattered as the seed of future heresies. It was especially the representatives of antinomianism during the apostolic times who welcomed the idea that faith alone suffices for justification, and consequently, the observance of the moral law is not necessary either as a prerequisite for obtaining justification or as a means for preserving it. I know that was a rather long paragraph, so allow me just to point out a couple words to you. Um, they had been conceived long before either by heretics. And, and the word heresy is a real strong word. And sometimes we throw it around with, with ease, like it just, uh, if somebody doesn't hold very tightly to our view of, of something particularly, we might call them a heretic. You shouldn't do that. Heresies are, uh, the word heretic ought to be reserved for people that are really off the reservation. So in the, in the Catholic view, the view, the view of Rome, Protestantism is really off the reservation. Um, and the last phrase I think is especially important, that they believe that Protestantism, and, I, and I'll pick it up here, and that consequently the observance of the moral law is not necessary. That's what they're saying that we would say. That observance of the moral law is not necessary, either as a prerequisite for obtaining justification or as a means for preserving it. Now, I would like to say, other than the fairly pejorative ideas that we were heretics, that's stating the case. That is true. What they said is true. Protestants do not believe that observance of the moral law is a prerequisite for faith or a prerequisite for obtaining justification. And we don't believe that observance of the moral law is a necessary element to preserve justification. Now, before I go on to the, to the quotation from the Council of Trent, I hope you also understand, though, that no Protestant minister in his right mind would then preach that moral law is not necessary, that we can break the moral law anytime we want to with no, with no consequences. Those are words that are being put into our mouth. And so for those to, some to say that, and some do, that creates a straw man. And what a straw man is, you... you you promote a position that the person doesn't really hold, and then you tear down the false position rather than actually stating what it is they really hold. So I think for the most part they were fair here, but now I want you to see directly from the Council of Trent, 16th century, I believe 16th century, um, what they had to say about justification by faith. Now listen carefully. The Council of Trent, which was a Roman Catholic council to determine some of these issues, they met, they met over quite a few years. The Council of Trent assigns the first and most important place to faith. Good. Which is styled the beginning, foundation, and root of all justification. And it tells us that all the bishops present at the council fully recognized how important it was to explain St. Paul saying that man is justified through faith. Don't ever think that they hadn't read their Bible. They have. So they understood that the traditional position had a flaw in it, and they knew they needed to understand that based upon what Paul said. Now, that would have been great up to a point, or it would have been good up to a point. I would have changed a few of the words. But here's where it goes sour. 
the next step. That's not what Paul said, was it? I hate to interject at this, but he didn't say the next step. He said justification is by, by faith. But here's what they say. Faith is a good starting point. And I think I'm being fair. The next step is a genuine sorrow for all sin with the resolution to begin a new life by receiving holy baptism and by observing the commandments of God. Again, this is a prerequisite for obtaining justification. And the process of justification in the third step is brought to a close by baptism of water. Actually sounds very similar to certain Protestant denominations. If they knew how close they came, doesn't it? If they knew how close they came to the doctrine straight from the Council of Trent, they probably would be concerned. But I don't think that they know. This is another quote directly from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Considering merely the psychological analysis of the conversion of sinners, as given by the Council, it is at once evident that faith alone cannot justify man. A direct quote. I'm not taking it out of context. That's a direct quote. Faith alone cannot justify man. And finally, only such faith as is active in charity and good works can justify man. I hope you see that that we're going to have a a problem here, especially with the interpretation of what the Apostle Paul has said. One sort of Jesuit priest put it this way. He said, faith gives the individual a new nature with which he can perform good works that can then earn him favor with God and eternal life. That's the Jesuit position. Okay. So we understand. Roman Catholics do not deny the necessity of faith in justification. Never speak to one of your Roman Catholic friends or a family member and say, you don't don't think you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, we do. Of course they do. But they do deny that faith alone, faith by itself, is sufficient. So here's where the dividing line takes place. It can't be faith alone and faith plus works. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us those are contradictory ideas, and the law of non-contradiction, just a simple law of logic, two opposites can't both be true at the same time in the same sense. They just can't. Theirs is a faith plus works salvation, and they believe that the faith alone view is heretical. That's, I believe that that's fair. If there was a Catholic theologian here, I don't really believe that they would argue with that at all. Also, and I want to say it again because I don't want to unnecessarily offend, uh, it should be kept in mind that many Catholics are unaware of what the leadership of Rome believes. That's probably a good thing. But I'm sure that if we took a test on the doctrinal statement at Pine Valley Bible Church, that I'm not sure everyone's going to get 100 on that either. So we don't want to throw stones in terms of, you know, the average Catholic doesn't know what the doctrinal statement at Rome says or what the Council of Trent said. The, the average Protestant probably wouldn't either, some more than others. And I know that many of you were brought up in the Catholic Church. I respect that. But I want you to see that there are important theological differences, and this, I think, was as good a time as any in our study of the Romans to point a few of them out. The reason I point them out is not so that you can win an argument. The reason I point them out is so that you can participate in winning a soul. 
that's what it's all about. I don't care a thing about winning arguments. I've won plenty of arguments, a lot more than I care that, that, that I would ever have been in. I've read books on how to win arguments. <laughs> and just to win an argument for the sake of winning an argument doesn't help anybody. But to win someone to Christ because you know the Scriptures, you know where they're coming from, you know where, what the Scriptures say, that's something entirely different. This is about personal evangelism. As we study the book of Romans, and as we have, if you've been here the last, well, at least the last four weeks, you really might come to a place where you say, in light of what you see in, in just Romans 3, 21 through 26, how could Rome possibly teach faith plus works? How could they possibly do that? Based upon what Paul seems to say in a very clear manner here. Well, if you've said that in the quiet of your own soul, well, welcome to the club. Because that's exactly what went through Luther's mind. That's exactly what went through Calvin's mind. That's exactly what went through Zwingli's mind, all within essentially the same period of time, you know, separated by a few years. Remember that for centuries, the scriptures were unavailable to the common man because they weren't translated into the various languages that the people spoke. If you weren't educated in Greek, Hebrew, and particularly Latin, you had to depend on someone else to tell you what the Word of God said. We have a tremendous advantage over those in the past because we can pick up a Bible in English and read it for ourselves if we choose to do so. This doesn't eliminate the need for gifted teachers, but it does allow folks to check things out for themselves. For literally hundreds of years, the common man didn't have that opportunity because the only real translation available was a translation in Latin. And if you didn't speak Latin, you were totally dependent on the local priest to tell you what the word said. And that local priest sometimes was dependent upon his higher-ups to tell him what it said, and then they had to go to Rome and, and look and see the way that the Pope interpreted it, and that's the way it was. And if you altered that interpretation in any way, if you had the wherewithal to do that, you better be prepared to be called to Rome to defend yourself, and if it didn't work out, you died. And that's what happened to John Huss, that's what they wanted to do to Martin Luther, and actually to many people over the centuries. That's not done anymore. I know there have been abuses in Protestantism as well, but this is history. It's not fantasy. I've heard it said that I don't want to read my Bible. I'm afraid that, I'm, that this, some of the translations aren't as good as they should be. And I will agree that there's no perfect English translation, but we really do have some very good ones, some very good ones. And the lack of perfection in translation should not be a reason to hesitate to read your Bible on your own every day. Morning and evening, day and night, I meditated upon your words. There's, there is no excuse, just none, for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to have a copy of the Word of God and not take a look at it every day. In other countries, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a difficulty. When I ministered in Kazakhstan, it was a big difficulty because the, the Bible that they had in Russian was fairly well translated. The Bible that they had in the Kazakh language was terribly translated. And it was a big problem throughout the whole conference that I participated in over there. In fact, one of the examples was in Malachi when the, when the English translations say God hates divorce. The Kazakh translation said 
If a man hates his wife, he should divorce her. Uh, poor translation. <laughs> but we don't, we don't have that excuse. I'm not saying that the, the giftedness of a pastor teacher is not necessary. Far from it. But I am saying, how dare we have the Word of God translated so that we don't have these pre-Reformation problems? They shouldn't creep up. And just like the Bereans who went to the Scriptures daily to check and see if what the Apostle Paul was saying is correct, I have no problem whatsoever, none, with you going to the Scriptures regularly and rereading First Peter after a Sunday morning session or rereading Romans after a Wednesday night session and come and ask questions about it. The only thing I would ask is that you, you at least understand that before I've presented anything, I gave it more than a passing glance. So don't just give it a passing glance and then come armed with you know, some um, uh, ugly questions. <laughs> at, least, at least give it some thought and then, then come with legitimate and serious questions, and that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way that you learn. And if there's something that hadn't been taught in a way that, that it was understandable, that helps me as well. So I love questions when they're well thought out and, and when, they've at least, uh, when at least it demonstrates that you, you are given the, whoever's doing the teaching credit for having looked at it more than 30, 35 minutes or so. Now, with that being said, let's take a look at verses 27 through 31 as we conclude chapter 3. And really, as with the concept that I've given you before, we're really starting chapter 4 now, particularly in verse 31. There's a big discussion on whether verse 31 should really have been put in chapter 4 by the editors of the text or whether it finishes up chapter 3. I really think that the, the whole of 27, 327 through chapter 4 is explaining 321 through 26 anyway. Read along with me now. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Here Paul makes it clear that no one, whether Jew or Gentile, can achieve acceptance with God by means of his own work. So what is there to brag about? You know, sometimes when I'm giving the gospel in a public setting, I'll make sure that the people that are listening to it know that nobody that's accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior uh, thinks that they're up on a pedestal. And they think that we're just a, a little bit better than everybody else now. Or God loved me just a little bit more. We were all sinners, according to the Apostle Paul, every single one of us. Maybe some of our sins weren't quite as offensive to other people than maybe other folks' sins were. But as far as God was concerned, we were all equally lost. We all had to come to God one way. And that's with the empty hands of faith. So exactly what was it you were bragging about? Think about it. If we, all, if we were all equally lost, and we all came in exactly the same way, no better, no worse, what is it that you have to brag about? And the answer, according to the Apostle Paul, is nothing. He says it is excluded. Boasting is excluded. Now, I want you to look at this. If salvation was by faith plus works, we would all bring one thing, faith. Now, we could argue that some people had more faith than another, but, but at least it's... For this sake of argument, let's say you had equal faith. And by that I mean just a little bit more than no faith at all. But let's say the person on this side of the room had faith and they brought a hundred good works with them. And the person over here had faith and they brought a million good works with them. 
The person on this side of the room brought Mother Teresa kind of works with them. So this person had faith plus Mother Teresa kind of works. This person had faith plus just a few things. They were nice a couple times in their life and did a few nice things. Now, when both of them come before God, they both have faith. But this one's got a million good works. This one has a hundred. Is there a basis for boasting there? Yes, there is. Because this one brought more. So there would be, even if the person never did, and someone who had the million good works probably never would, would brag about it, but there would be a basis for it. Because this one brought more to the table than the poor guy over here who just brought his faith plus a hundred good works. But now, if, as Paul says, if good works aren't a part of it, if the only thing that you're bringing is faith and nothing else, no matter which side of the room you come in on, faith and nothing else. And before you came, you were equally lost, and he's already made that clear in, in chapter 3. Is there any basis to brag then? Not really. That's why he says boasting is excluded. If we both come with empty hands, can you brag that your hands were more empty than someone else's? No. There's nothing to brag about. And that's a good starting point, isn't there? Because if we're to understand grace, if we're to understand what God's done for us, we've got to come to this conclusion that we didn't deserve salvation any more than anybody else did. And you know who else had to come to that conclusion? The Jew and the Gentile. But particularly in, in Paul's audience, it was the Jew that had the greater problem with this. So I think in verse 27, Paul is probably considering the Jew when he says, where then is boasting, it is excluded. The Jew believed in Paul's time, and actually you see this as a carryover even in today, the Jew believed that he was nearer to a relationship with the Creator than the Gentile simply because of his genetic relationship to Father Abraham. It is true that the Jew has advantages, or had advantages, but Paul's already dealt with the advantages that the Jew had. They had the oracles of God. They had God's divine self-revelation in the Hebrew Scriptures. But they didn't take advantage of the advantages that they had. And they stand just as condemned as the Gentiles at whom they look down their noses. The Jew, the Jew has many advantages. Paul will be the first one to tell you that. He'd also be the first one to lament the fact that they wasted them. They were God's chosen covenanted people. They still are God's chosen covenanted people. Israel holds a special place in God's anthropomorphic heart. And there will be a place for Israel in the future. But that being the case, they should have demonstrated humility and not arrogance. They should have demonstrated gratitude and not an assumption of superiority. So, Gentile, I would tell you and me both, don't make the same mistake that Paul is cautioning the Jew. Just because you have been saved, don't assume an attitude of arrogance about that. You should assume an attitude of humility. And our attitude should be one of gratitude, not an attitude of superiority. All boasting is senseless and sinful. For, Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, not even one. And in Romans 3.23, specifically, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is simply no room for boasting. And very decisively, Paul states, it is excluded. And the tense of this verb means it's once and for all this has been banished. 
the right to brag has been excluded. And it's been excluded because we come with the empty hands of faith. How much more empty can one's hands be than empty? Now, there's a phrase in here. When Paul says a law of faith, he says, by what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. He's using a play on words here in which the characteristic understood, the characteristic demand understood in the Mosaic law, which was works, is being contrasted with the overarching basic, basic command of the Mosaic law, which is faith. See, if somebody looked at the Mosaic law in a, in a very surface way, and a lot of people do that, they think, well, the Mosaic law is all about works. And, and you could look at it in, in one sense and see that. But if you take a real big picture of the Mosaic Law and look at it in its entirety, you'll really see that the Mosaic Law is about faith. The Mosaic Law is demonstrating to you that you can't do it on your own, so you need to exercise faith. And so that's why he uses both words in the same phrase. So the bottom line of verse 27, once it is seen that God's righteousness comes to people apart from the law, there can be no more cause for any human pride and human achievement. Okay. Now verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I've got to stop and say, how much more clear could Paul be than that? What does he have to say to make it clear? We maintain. And the we here is a bit confusing. It could mean the Apostle Paul and his companions or the, his fellow apostles. But what he probably is saying is the we here is an editorial we, meaning those who have believed in Jesus Christ. We, we understand this. We consider that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here, by implication, the two conceivable methods of being saved are set over against each other in sharp antithesis. According to the first, a person is saved by obeying God's law, which to the Jew men, as interpreted and as was expanded by their tradition, um, according to keeping the specific commands in the law. According to the second view, he's saved by faith. I want you to remember, we've talked about this before, but I don't want to get so wrapped up in Romans you forget this. Technically speaking, technically speaking, faith doesn't save you. Did that shock you? Technically speaking, I want you to remember, God saves you. He saves you on the basis of your faith. So if I, if I use terminology about faith saving, I do want you to understand, God saves on the basis of faith. God is intimately involved in this process. It's not like he's a distant observer somewhere and he's got to kind of set up the whole program. Salvation is a very personal event every time it happens. But that being said, sometimes I will use that, saved by faith, and when I do, I want you to know what I'm saying. Now, when, in his translation of the New Testament, Luther reached this passage, he rendered it as follows, and this is in translation from German. So we hold that a person is justified without works of the law through faith alone. For the addition, and you might see it in the English Bible, there's no word alone in there. For the addition of the word alone, he was severely criticized. And I want you to listen to his answer. If your papist makes much useful or useless fuss about the word sola, alone, tell him at once. Dr. Martin Luther will have it so. Are they, meaning the papists, doctors? So am I. Are they learned? So am I. Are they preachers? So am I. Are they theologians? So am I. Therefore, the word alone shall remain in my New Testament. And though all papal donkeys get furious, they shall not take it out. Do you see why he wasn't really well liked in Rome? 
You might can see he wasn't real flexible when he was teaching something that he was convinced was correct. An interesting aside, and that is that Thomas Aquinas, who was an outstanding Catholic theologian, revered by other Catholic theologians, especially in his day and even now, he was long before Luther's time, he also included the word alone in his translation, as did many of the early church fathers, and it's legitimate to do that. Because when you translate, you're translating from one language into another. You're trying to get the idea from one language into the other language. So it's very legitimate. And again, I don't know how much more clearly Paul could have put the idea than he did in Romans 3.28. It is crystal clear here. It's apart from works of the law. What the church at Rome would say is, yes, you have to have faith. Yes, Paul said you were justified by faith, but I don't think you get what faith means. That's what, they, that's what the, the, the comeback would be. Yes, it's faith, but it's not the way the, the reformers understood faith, just coming with empty hands and trusting Jesus Christ for eternal life. Faith includes things. Faith includes works. Faith includes a commitment to change. Faith includes feeling sorry for your sins. And again, I've got to say that many Protestant theologians are really going back further to Rome are closer to Rome than they are to Wittenberg, where Luther was. Because we're starting to do that again. Sometimes when you'll see salvation tracks, you'll see a whole bunch of steps in there. And the middle one might be faith. You know, realize you need a Savior. you got no problem with that. I think that's a precondition. Feel, uh, feel sorry for your sins. Commit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Him. And be baptized. And uh, there's a four or five step program for a lot of folks. And I want you to see... That's very Roman. Now, that's the way you want to go with it. That's fine. But, but you need to understand that you're contradicting what the Apostle Paul has said very clearly here. Now, in close connection with the thought of verse 28, Paul continues in verse 29, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And in verse 30, Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. If it were true that works in conformity with the law were required for justification, then Gentiles who lived apart from the law would have no chance to be saved. You see the pride that comes with that? If you, if you have to keep the works of the Mosaic law and you live outside of the community of Israel, how could you ever be saved? If you had to keep the works of the law and your father Abraham... How are you saved? Matter of fact, Paul's going to make that argument that Abraham was saved a long time before the law ever came about. How was Abraham saved? The man you revere. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. So if that's the pattern of Father Abraham, then it ought to be the pattern for all. So God would be, if that was the case, he'd be the God of the Jews only if you had to keep the Mosaic law. The Gentiles would have to look elsewhere for salvation, perhaps to some other God, at least under Paul's culture. But Paul definitely rejects this suggestion. There is one God and one way of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. One God, one way. One God, one way of salvation in the Old Testament, just like there is in the New Testament. Now, I do want to note very briefly that dispensationalists have been wrongly understood in the past as having proposed two methods of salvation, one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. 
in the Old Testament, it is said that we say, I'm saying it is alleged that we say, that you had to keep the law for salvation in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, salvation is by grace through faith. That is a bogus, bogus charge that has been laid on dispensationalism. There may have been, I'm not going to say there were, but there may have been a few that taught, that it, that taught this particular teaching but it is not the view of the overwhelming number of dispensational scholars. So it is an aberration. It is not the norm. And just because you're dispensational does not mean you think that salvation was one way in the Old Testament one way in the New. So finally, in verse 31, as we finish up tonight, Paul says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? I think that's a legitimate question, don't you? The law was extremely important in Paul's culture. I mean, it was something they studied. When somebody was a lawyer... Back then, in Paul's culture, at least in the Jewish culture, that meant they knew the Mosaic Law. It was not the same as, as the study of law today. So when Paul comes along and says, listen, you're not justified by works of the law. It's not even faith plus works of the law. I'm taking the works of the law out of it completely. And not only is he going to do it here, he's going to do it in the next chapter too. You know, a, a good Orthodox Jew would have to scratch their heads and says, well, what is this guy doing? He's taking the law and throwing it out. He's stomping on the law. Act like he doesn't care about the law. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Is he better than Moses? Paul's going to cover that. That's not what he's saying. What he really is, is asking is, is, do we invalidate the law through our insistence on faith? Does he? No. Because a minute ago, like if we took the overarching view of the law, it points us to faith. By the way, the law in, in most Jewish minds is not just the, the portions of the Mosaic Law that it's, that's mentioned in, for example, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law includes the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. They would call the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Where would you find the story about Abraham trusting God, Abraham's justification by being through faith? Where, what part of the, old, or the Hebrew Scriptures do you find that? Do you find that in the writings Wisdom literature, the prophets. Yeah, hey, find it in the law, don't you? Yeah, that's the problem. We want to compartmentalize too many things. The law, if we take it as the Torah, that's where we find the concept of justification by faith. We should have known this going into it. And anybody that was familiar with the Apostle Paul should have had an idea. The Apostle Paul was one of the most educated Jewish people of his day. And unless he had just was completely out of his mind, he wouldn't have made a mistake like that. If you're going to argue the law with the Apostle Paul, you better be, get up early and you better take a lunch with you. Maybe a couple sack lunches because you're going to be there a while because he knew the law as well or better than you did. No, he's saying, what I'm teaching, the justifications by faith, doesn't invalidate the law. Actually, he's very sharp in his answer, very decisive, abrupt. By no means, the Greek meganoito, the strongest way you can say no, fill in whatever blanks you want to fill in, the strongest way that one can say no. He says, no, I'm not doing that. And on the contrary, there's a Greek, there's a, many ways to say but in Greek. There's a real strong way, Allah. That's the strongest way you can contrast what has just been said with what you believe. He says, Allah, on the contrary, we uphold the law. You see what he's done? Rabbi, you're arguing the law with me. 
Rabbi, you're saying that I'm nullifying the law by what I'm teaching. On the contrary. I'm upholding the law. And by implication, what is he saying? You're the one that doesn't understand the law. There is a continuity that's beautiful between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's not, it's, there aren't, aren't two different books with two different gods. In the Old Testament, God is not the angry God. In the New Testament, God is the, the nice God, the loving God. It's the same God, Old Testament and New. God is one. The plan of salvation is one, Old Testament and New. Paul says, absolutely, we do not nullify the law, but on the contrary, we establish the law. We uphold the law. To every believer in Jesus Christ, the doctrine of justification by faith should be a very precious treasure. When the psalmist says, Thy words I have treasured up, I have hid up in my heart that I may not sin. The doctrine of justification by faith should be a treasure to us. I hope it hasn't been so long since you were personally justified by faith that it's become old and boring in yesterday's news. This is an incredible gift that we should be thankful for every single day. Now, we've already seen that the discovery of this wonderful theme meant a lot for Martin Luther. But when John Bunyan, another great Christian of the past, read Romans 3.24, he said it was as if he heard God saying to his deeply troubled, guilt-stricken soul, Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, not upon thee, and I will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Let's treasure the the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative that you did not require us to bring anything with us when we came to you with empty hands of faith. Father, I'm grateful that boasting has been excluded And, Father, I'm grateful you set it up this way, for we would never know if we had brought enough for you to accept us on the basis of works. Father, if there's anyone here tonight that has never been justified freely by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would would work on their soul as the evening progresses. And they would realize that you loved them so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in you should him should never perish but have everlasting life. Father, what a wonderful grace gift. What a, what a shame to pass it up. So I pray that if that's the case tonight, and you only know if it is, that you would work on the souls of those involved. And now, Father, as we go our way, I pray you put a protective hedge around us and dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.